Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 through verse 29. And there came two angels to Sodom at even, and Lot sat in the gate of Sodom. And Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Behold now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet, and ye shall rise up early and go on your ways. And they said, Nay, but we will abide in the street all night. And he pressed upon them greatly, and they turned in unto him, and entered into his house, and he made them a feast, and did bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. And they called unto Lot, and said unto him, Where are the men which came into thee this night? Bring them out unto us, that we may know them. And Lot went out the door, out at the door unto them, and shut the door after him, and said, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. Behold, now I have two daughters which have not known man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you, and do ye to them as it is good in your eyes. Only unto these men do nothing. For therefore came they under the shadow of my roof. And they said, Stand back. And they said again, This one fellow came in to sojourn, and he will needs be a judge. Now will we deal worse with thee than with them? And they pressed sore upon the man, even Lot, and came near to break the door. But the men put forth their hand and pulled Lot into the house to them and shut the door. And they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. And the men said unto Lot, Hast thou here any besides son-in-law and thy sons and thy daughters? And whatsoever thou hast in the city, bring them out of this place. And we will destroy this place, because the cry of them is waxen great before the face of the Lord. And the Lord hath sent us to destroy it. And Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. And when the morning arose, then the angels hastened, Lot saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters, which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. And while he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand, and upon the hand of his wife, and upon the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful unto him. And they brought him forth, and set him without the city. And it came to pass, when they had brought them forth abroad, that he said, Escape for thy life, look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain, escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. And Lot said unto them, O not so, my Lord, behold now, thy servant hath found grace in thy sight, and thou hast magnified thy mercy, which thou hast shown unto me in saving my life. I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil take me, and I die. Behold now, this city is near to flee unto, and it is a little one. O let me escape thither. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. And he said unto him, See, I have accepted thee concerning this thing also, that I will not overthrow this city for which thou hast spoken. Haste thee, escape thither, for I cannot do anything till thou become thither. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zoar. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. 
But his wife looked back from behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord. And he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain and beheld. And lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities into which Lot dwelt. And thus is the reading of God's word and all his people said, Amen. Amen. Well, um, this morning I want to take a look at this. I'm particularly interested in the life of Lot. He is what I would characterize as a portrait of grace. God had great mercy and great grace upon him. And I want to, after, I'm going to, after I say a few things, I want to kind of walk through Genesis 19 and just look at Lot's life and see if we can find anything meritorious in his life that would warrant God's grace and God's mercy. But first I want to set before us a historical context of what we see in here. I don't know what your imagery of the city is or what your imagery of um, that place is um, in the course of history. I have always had this view in my head that the, uh, these cities are very sparsely populated because that's what we see in the movies. I guess they just don't want to use the cast of thousands that they did you know, when they made movies in the 1930s and 40s. But these cities were um, populated um, with uh, many peoples. We appreciate from Genesis chapter 14 that when the Chaldeans came down and overthrew the cities of the plain, that uh, the kings that were of those cities organized an an army and went out to fight against the uh, Babylonians, the Chaldeans that had come down there. So we should appreciate that they indeed have an organizational structure. They had been paying tribute to the uh, king of Chaldea for some time. So we would appreciate that they would have some kind of an ambassage either from Babylon or to Babylon by which the tribute was um, taken to uh, Babylon. In Luke chapter 17, verse 23, the Lord is speaking about the end of time, and, the, um, and he brings forth some simple truths about the time of Noah and the time of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he says this, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage unto the day that Noah entered into the ark, And the flood came and destroyed them all. Verse 28, likewise, also as it was in the days of Lot. They did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. And then he says, thus, even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Um, I'll read the next verse. In that day, he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. Um, so we should appreciate that they were went about life in a normative fashion, just as we are today. They are eating and drinking. They're either preparing the food in their own house or they're going out to dinner. Again, we should appreciate that they have a viable economy because they are taxing the people by which they would pay tribute to the Chaldeans. They married wives, so marriage was a normative institution that we know that God set up back in Genesis chapter 2. Um, they were giving their sons, or excuse me, giving their daughters in marriage. It says they bought and they sold and they planted and they builded. And so when it comes to describe the city of Zoar, that city is described as a little one. So these were not little cities because the same adjective does not apply to them. Um, the sins of those cities, and I'm going to Cities, plural, we tend to just think of Sodom and Gomorrah, but they're 
there were other cities that were destroyed there, which I'll set before us in a minute. But the, the sins of the city are set before us, not only in the things that are obvious to, uh, to us and from whence we get the term sodomite, but in Ezekiel chapter 16, it lists some other ones. You pick it up in verse 49 of Ezekiel chapter 16, and the Lord is speaking here and comparing um, Jerusalem with what's taking place in the city of Sodom. And he says, Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom, pride Fullness of bread and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy, and they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw good. So they have a number of sins that are associated with them, and I would share with you that having um, fullness of bread is not a sin, only in the context of you have lifted up yourself in pride, thinking that you are the means and agency by which you do prosper and not attributing your wealth and the things that you have and things that you enjoy to the grace of God. So the first sin that's listed, of course, is pride. Then when you add to that the fullness of bread, assuming that um, taking it upon um, yourself as though you are the source of your um, um, wealth and then don't strengthen the hands of the poor and needy with it. Then we have covetousness and greed mixed up with that. And so we should appreciate that if you have abundance of wealth, then there's some expectation from God that you will appreciate that it came from him, and then you will do that to help people who are poor and needy. Now, I want us to appreciate that God says, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. So there's no expectation that you will just indiscriminately give what you have to people that are have their hand out. Um, we see that all over the state of California where you have all sorts of people who will not work and yet will readily receive a handout when um, housing is set before them and food is set before them uh, with the uh, condition that they'll obey certain house rules. They refuse it and they, and they choose not to do it and they rather, would rather live in a blue tent on the beach and have people hand them things. So again, um, we would take everything in a, with the understanding that we are to manage our resources um, um, intelligently. Um, so any event, they had a number of sins that were set before them here. And so we would appreciate that God did not destroy them simply because of the things that we associate with um, the sodomite. When you consider the sins that are laid before us in terms of what we see in Genesis 19, what we see in 2 Peter chapter 2, which I'll look at in a minute, and what we just read there in Ezekiel, I think we can appreciate that as a country, we are very similar to the things that are going on or were going on in Sodom and Gomorrah and those cities round about them. Last week, I mentioned that the pride flag is being run up, you know, in the... Um, and government flags as well as state, uh, federal government uh, flagpoles as well as state flagpoles. And so this country is identifying themselves with the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. We have this issue of gender dysphoria for which children are being mutilated. They're too young to be making a decision or have some real comprehension or understanding about what their gender is. And they're not being taught uh, properly what uh, defines gender. Um, Abortion is rampant. Um, We don't need to go through all the sins that this nation is guilty of, but nevertheless, I want us to appreciate that. Just as the Lord says in um, Matthew there, or in Luke, we're guilty of the same things that they were guilty, and life now is like life was then when the Lord came and destroyed it. So quite frankly, we can expect that to happen to us at some point in the future when the Lord does come. Now, in 2 Peter chapter 2, 
the Lord sets before us a simple statement that he made an example of them. So in 2 Peter chapter 2, I'll pick it up in verse 4, because the Lord is saying, he's kind of running down a list here. He says in verse 4 of 2 Peter chapter 2, so he says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, in the Greek word there is Tardis, it's not the same thing that we think of as hell, Hades, or Gehenna. It's a special place for the angels. They're being reserved. Um, that word appears only once in the scripture, and it's right there. Uh, so, for if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And I want to make a comment here about that. Recall that Shem, who was a deckhand on Noah's Ark, is still alive at this time. It's within 500 years of the flood. So they have an eyewitness to God's judgment available to them if they would go seek him. Um, But they don't. Verse 6, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. So he says that he has turned them into ashes, condemning them with an overthrow, and made them an example. Now, if we didn't know where Sodom and Gomorrah was, if we couldn't find the example that's been set before us, then it's not an example. That would be an absolutely meaningless statement. But he did leave an example. He did leave the um, archaeological records of those cities. You can find them on the southwest corner of the Dead Sea. The cities are indeed there. And they've even found the archaeological ruins of the city of Zoar. What's different between the two is the archaeological city of um, archaeological uh, evidence of Zoar is uh, not a heap of ashes. God spared that city as he said he did. But you can see the footprint is a square, which I'm told by archaeologists that's how cities start. They start out as a square. So it was a little city. It didn't grow, but it remained. the um, footprint remained a square versus the footprint of the other cities in the region were irregular, indicating that the cities were bigger and had grown over a period of time. So we can appreciate by virtue of what is shown in the archaeological record that indeed those cities were turned into ashes. Now you can type in YouTube, you can look up Sodom and Gomorrah, and you can see uh, pictures of people going there picking sulfur balls um, out of the ash heaps and then lighting them on fire. Um, because some of the sulfur balls, they were buried so quickly, they, in depraved of oxygen, they did not burn. They have taken those sulfur balls, taken them to laboratories, and determined that the sulfur content is purer than any sulfur that has been found on the, uh, on the earth. So they were clearly rained down from heaven, and God said he left them as an example, as those um, that after should live ungodly. Verse 7, and delivered... Just Lot, that doesn't mean only Lot, it means that he was just in a judicial sense, vexed with a filthy conversation of the wicked. He's defining what they're doing there, their behavior as filthy and wicked. Verse 8, for that righteous man, now he's describing him as being righteous, dwelling among them in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul. Second time God has used that word, defining him as righteous from day to day with their unlawful deeds. So he's defined their behavior as wicked and um, filthy and unlawful deeds. Even though the Mosaic law doesn't exist, the law of God is written on the heart of every man. So everybody knows that what they're doing is wrong. But twice we see that Lot is defined as righteous and once as just. Verse 9, the Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations. 
and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. That's an understatement with respect to Lot in the context of how he was delivered. Now, I want us to appreciate that there were more than just two cities that the Lord destroyed. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, um, verse 23, he lists them for us. Deuteronomy 29, verse 23. And the whole land thereof is brimstone and salt and burning. That is not sown. Land won't grow anything, nor beareth any grass groweth therein. Like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboam, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. So the Lord is listing the cities. He destroyed four cities there, not just the two, not just Sodom, although Sodom is highlighted here for us, but he destroyed actually four cities. That's a lot of people that were destroyed. Um, that's Deuteronomy 29, 23, if you're looking for it. Um, destroyed four cities. That's a lot of people, again, that were destroyed. It says in verse 25 of Genesis 19 that he says, quote, And he overthrew those cities, and all the plain, and all the inhabitants of the cities, and that which grew upon the ground. So he basically turned it into the Nevada desert, where they, the nuclear test site. It was, he absolutely destroyed it. Now, where does all this begin for Lot? And we have seen in the past that Abraham is a portrait of somebody who walks by faith. He had his struggles in the beginning, to be sure, but he becomes an example for us as somebody who walks by faith. Justified by faith, he walks by faith. Lot is what I would characterize as a carnal Christian, and you'll find that term in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That It's almost an oxymoron, but that's but that's who Lot is. I'm going to call him a carnal Christian, and that's, this is kind of where his walk starts in independence from Abram. Uh, up to this point, up to Genesis chapter 13, he's really a tag-along. Where Abraham has gone, he has gone. But then there becomes an issue because the Lord is prospering both of them. Their flocks and herds are growing, and um, Lot doesn't think that there's enough land to support them both. Uh, it's an interesting statement, but obviously it's not true. God can sustain the cattle on a thousand hills, which he owns. But I want you to appreciate there's a, little, there's a difference here between the two men in that in Genesis chapter 13, that Abraham is specifically described as being rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. And yet down in verse 5, when it talks about Lot, it simply says that he had flocks and herds and tents doesn't understand and appreciate that Abraham is being um, particularly blessed by God because he's got other material possessions just besides cattle. So they have this issue, and uh, Lot um, thinks it's problematic, and so they have a conversation, and Abraham very magnanimously says, okay, I'll tell you what, look around, you take the land that you choose, because uh, Abraham is not worried that he will suffer any loss as a result of it. God has been prospering him, and even in spite of himself, so he looks at all the land that's all before him. And then in verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes as her deacon read this morning and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. So he looks down and it literally looks like the garden of Eden. And obviously it's watered by um, springs that come up in addition to the Jordan River. It's beautiful. And if you have cattle, you would be thinking to yourself, that's where I'm going to go because it obviously has an abundance of natural resources that would be good for me. Keep in mind that they even put the city's name Zoar in here that is going to be uh, beautiful. 
where is it that Lot wants to go after the angels tell him? He doesn't want to go to the mountains. He wants to go to Zoar. He's still thinking, obviously, about this here. So it says, Lot chose him all the plain of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves, um, the one from the other. Abraham dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities, plural, of the plain, and pitched his tent toward Sodom. And then the Lord tells us that the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. That is what where um, Lot has pitched his tent for. He's got eyes for the things of this world. He's got eyes for what possessions he might get from it. And he's pitched his, lot, pitched his tent um, towards um, Sodom. Now, it says that he lived in the city. So he goes down to the Jordan Plain. And I want us to keep in mind here that God uses geography to teach us things. He's going to the place that is the lowest place on the planet Earth that's still above water. God is using geography to teach us something. And where does that water terminate? In a place called the Dead Sea. So down he goes, and there's a number of cities that he's going to have to go through as he works his way down from the plain of Jordan to where he ends up in Sodom. And I mentioned to this us once before the names of those cities. He's going to go through um, five cities. First one's Lasha, Lasha, and that means unto blindness. Then he goes through Zeboim, which means troops. Then he goes through the city of Adma, which means earthiness, so you think fleshiness. Then he goes through Gomorrah, and the name of that city means bondage. And then he goes and ends up in Sodom, which means fettered or shackled. So all of these cities mean something, and I would have you keep in mind that God destroyed Zeboim, Adma, Gomorrah, and Sodom. He destroyed four of those cities. So what we can appreciate we should see here is that... Um, you know, wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many, though, many there go there on, you know, troops. And so we can see that that's where he is. He's in the broad way heading down to the wide gate. But we know uh, narrow is the way and straight is the gate that leadeth unto life. And few be there that find it. So God's going to take him through that. He's going to drag him through that, that narrow gate. So the word Jordan means their descent. So there is his descent, goes down there, and he's chasing after the things of the world. And he goes through and lives finally in Sodom. There he is. He's caught up in the things of this world. He obviously found himself an attractive woman, and he has married her. And he lives a life where he is vexed continually by the things that are happening with him. Our deacon shared with us a short trip up to the city on um, Friday, and I'm sure he was vexed by the things that he saw Lot did what Christians are told not to do. He married, obviously, a non-believer. He married a non-Christian, and that's going to create a problem in the relationship. The Lord says that um, you're going to want to do things that are pleasing unto your spouse, which he did, and so they stayed there in the city. Um, so he gets caught up in her world, and he doesn't want to leave her, as a man should not uh, want to leave his wife. Um, and so... Given that he's described as just and righteous, you wonder, how is that manifest? How do we see that in his life? Well, one of the ways that we know that he was righteous is you'll recall that Abraham had interceded on behalf of Lot in Genesis chapter 18 and was praying that the angel of the Lord would not destroy any of the righteous um, he would spare the city for the righteous' sake. You know, he's not going to destroy the righteous with the wicked. And so he takes that prayer all the way down to 10 people. And as I put the question for us last week, why didn't he take it the next step and say, for one person's sake? Which is what God did. He did spare the city of Zoar 
for one righteous person's sake. The best thing that ever happened to those people was the day that Lot walked into that city, and therefore God spared that city for one righteous person's sake. So that's another way. I mean, Second Peter says that he's righteous, but we can also appreciate, by the way things played out, that he was righteous. Now, when we think about how God saves us, um, we have to appreciate his grace and his mercy. And Lot even says that about himself. With, in verse 16, he says, The Lord being merciful unto him. Then in verse 19, Lot says of himself, Thy servant hath found grace in thy sight, and thou hast magnified thy mercy, which thou hast showed unto me in saving my life. So Lot has, um, had some kind of an epiphany here that he's appreciating that God is having mercy on him, even though he is um, slow to apprehend it and act upon it. It's nevertheless taking place in his life. We read in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 8, and we can apply this to Lot's life. It says, But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, that appeared to Lot, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so we appreciate that God uh, showed mercy upon him, and it was not by works of righteousness which he had done. I mean, Scripture tells us very clearly in Isaiah 64, 6, that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We also know what it says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, where it says that by grace are ye saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast, um, but is a gift of God. And so God uh, exercised that mercy and that grace in Lot's life when he went down there and pulled him out of um, Sodom. Now, when you think of what a Christian should be, I mean, the Lord talks about how people talk about lifestyle evangelism. You know, we ought to go out and do good works, and then people will look at us and go, oh, they're a Christian. I'd sure like to be like them. The Lord says of um, lifestyle evangelism in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16, he says, ye are the salt of the earth. What did Lot's wife become? Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt lost its savior, wherefore shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot. Now, verse 14. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it may give light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. It's hard for me to read that without a smile, thinking of Lot's life. He was not on a hill. He was on the lowest place on the planet Earth. And how did his life end? Not a light on a hill, but a light in a hill because he ended up in a cave. That's where his life ends that we see in the Chronicles is the life. He's, he's in a hill. Sorry, he's in a cave. And what is he doing in a cave? Um, he gets drunk by his daughters, not once but twice, and they commit incest with him. And what is his legacy that goes on? Most people hide a sin like that, and most of incest is committed by a father on his daughters as opposed to the daughters on the father. They name their children, and the firstborn bare a son, the firstborn of his daughters, and called his name Moab. That means 
of Father or from, from the Father. So they're naming the child, and it's indicating where he came from, that he came from her father. And the younger, she also bare a son and called his name Ben-Ami, and that means son of my people. So in the names of these two people groups um, is the um, idea of incest, which is where they came from. Now, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. So we need to appreciate that God is protecting the seed that shall eventually um, produce Christ. Because we know that from the Moabites, from Lot and the Moabites, um, comes Ruth, who um, comes the line of David. So God is protecting the seed. You also see him protecting the seed with respect to the, his two daughters, um, because when the men pressed Lot sorely for the uh, angels that they might, quote, know them, what does Lot do? He offers up his two daughters. Um, I can't imagine what he was thinking when he would do that. He tells the brethren, do not do so wickedly. And then he says, you know, these men uh, have come under the shadow of my roof. And I'm thinking to myself, well, what about your daughters? He should have laid down his life to protect the integrity of his daughters. But what we should appreciate is they are described as virgins, meaning that even living in that awful city um, with their lascivious behavior, God kept them um, pure, kept them virgins, and obviously protecting the seed, which he has done with other people. He did the same thing with Sarah when um, Abraham denied her before the Egyptians. He protected the seed there. He made sure that nobody lay with her. He does the same thing with Rebekah, protects the seed with her when... um, they go down and live amongst the um, King Emelech, I think it is. Abimelech, rather. Um, so God protects the seed, and we can see and appreciate that he's shepherding uh, everything that is taking place with us here. So let's take a look at verse, 19, uh, verse 1 of Genesis chapter 19, and let's take a look at this and see if we can find anything that we might attribute to Lot in terms of good works. We see here that the two angels come unto him at Sodom. And so when we contrast that with what we've seen with respect to Abraham, we can appreciate that he does not have as good a relationship with the Lord as does Abraham. Abraham 3 came unto him, and I've made a case, uh, made the case last week where it's, it's God. What you have is the Trinity set before Abraham, and um, what you have set before um, Lot here is you have really the Son and the Holy Ghost. You go from 3 to 2, eventually you'll end up with 1, which would be the Son of God. So two witnesses come to him, and in Abraham's case, they come during the daytime. It's the light of day. Um, He's sitting in the door of his tent in the heat of the day, and when he sees them, he immediately runs out to them. Um, Not so with Lot. It says Lot rose up to meet them, and of course, it's at evening, so he doesn't have this much light, if you will, to appreciate who they are. And it says that he bowed himself with his face towards the ground. So he makes polite deference to them. He nods his head, whereas Abraham has said in Genesis 17, twice he fell on his face. And in Genesis 18, it says he bows himself to the ground. So we see greater deference and greater fear of God in Abraham's life than we do at Lot. And as we have shared before, that um, Abraham is presently residing up in um, Mamre, which we understand to mean that he's in communion with the Lord. So right from the beginning here, we can appreciate that he does not have the relationship with the Lord that um, Abraham does, but he does have a relationship with the Lord. And so in the context and the application to our own selves, what kind of a relationship do you have with the Lord? Well, the more time you spend on your face in prayer, the greater the relationship you will have with the Lord and the greater the revelation of what God's will is in your life will be manifest to you. Abraham, as I said last week, he knows that God is coming to destroy that city. 
And we even read that in verse 13. There's no question what, what they've come there for. They know what's going on. God knows what's going on down there. He knows what's in the heart of every man. Verse 13, the angels say, the Lord hath sent us to destroy it. There's no question but what they're going to do. Lot, he doesn't really know what they're going to do. But he says, um, come and stay with me. I pray you tear your servant's house all night and wash your feet. Well, who's going to wash their feet? It doesn't say here, but with respect to Abraham, Abraham becomes the consummate servant, and he goes and he'll wash their feet. And what does Abraham do? He sets a full meal before them. And last week we made a case that that pictures the crucifixion of Christ. They're under a tree, and they um, slay for him the son of the herd, and they make cakes. And so he has a full meal there. Down in verse 3 here, it speaks about him setting a feast before them, but that comes from the word wine. What he's really doing is he's offering them wine and unleavened bread, which is like unto the Lord's table, which is in remembrance of what the Lord has. It's looking back, whereas in, with respect to Abraham, we're seeing the entire anticipatory cross set before us. So the, um, what he's appreciating and understanding of the sacrifice of Christ is not as full as what um, Abraham appreciates and understands. And he has to press them greatly in verse 3 that they will come and be with him, whereas with Abraham, he just mentions it, and then they uh, agree to stay with him. So... Here we see that once they come in there, that all the men from every quarter come and want to lie with the men that are there. And so he's presently enjoying communion and fellowship with the Lord, but it's interrupted. There was no interruption with respect to Abraham's time with the Lord, but there's an interruption here. He allows himself to be interrupted. They knock at the door. I don't know why he answered it. He answers it. He goes out, and now his communion is interrupted with the Lord. And now we have a problem here, like I mentioned, because he's going to set his daughter's before the men of the city and let them do with them what they will. I cannot fathom a man doing that kind of a thing. But nevertheless, he does that. So while he's out there in dispute with the men and the men are starting to attack him, who is it that drags his, um, um, him, who is it that drags him back into the house? But the angels, they open the door, they reach and they pull him back into the house. And they close the door, and then they blind the men that are out there and so that they cannot find the door. And we'll talk about that in the future. What, there's all sorts of interesting things that are set before us here, but I just want to focus on Lot. God shows Lot great mercy here because they basically offer to save everybody that's associated with him. In verse 12, they ask the question, they already know the answer, but this is for our benefit that we would appreciate that the mercy that God extends to um, one of his elect, one of his saints, kind of is a, a, has a sanctifying bubble with respect to people that are associated with him. So they're going to save everybody that's associated with his um, family. As I already mentioned, the city of Soar was spared for Lot's sake, the one righteous person's sake. And so they tell him in verse 17 that whatever you have, to bring them out of the place. Now, we know he doesn't have any sons because the issue is about his seed. If he had sons, then there wouldn't be an issue about the seed and the daughters wouldn't have to lie with Lot. So we can make inferences here. They don't have, he doesn't have any sons. He's speaking about the sons-in-law. Now, their daughters are not married. It says they're virgins. But in the Bible, if you are engaged or betrothed to be married, you're said to be married. And in, in uh, the Mosaic Law, if there's a betrothal, and you break off the betrothal, you have to give a writing of divorce. So it's, it's very formal in Scripture. So they ask him to bring them out of this place. Think of the language here. You go and you bring them out of this place. It says, because we're going to destroy it. And so God, 
um, Lot goes in verse 14 to speak unto his son-in-laws, which are, um, like I said, betrothed to him. And then he says, up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. That's not what the angels told them to do. They didn't say, you go there and you tell them to leave. They said, you go get them and you bring them out. In other words, you leave and you bring them out with you. But that's not what he does. And they look at him like, what, are you crazy? It says they, they thought of him as one that mocked. Well, why would they think that? Well, he certainly hasn't been standing like a light on a hill. He's, his witness and testimony is not very good. I was visiting a, uh, a friend's house the other day, and um, I must have counted 10 Bibles, at least in this man's house. He, they were all over the place. He had an office. He had many on the bookshelf. He had a Bible and a desk over there and a Bible and a desk over there. There's one up in the bedroom, and there's another one in another place. They were all over the house. And so it should be in a Christian's house that you ought to be a good witness, at least to the people within your own house. I would hope that when somebody walks into your house, they would see a Bible somewhere. But obviously not in Lot's case. So he tells them to get out because God's going to destroy this place. Uh, They don't believe him. And so down in verse 15, the angel goes to Lot again saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. That's the second time he's been told to take people that are associated with him out of the city. And he doesn't do it. Verse 16, and while he lingered, you know, he's scratching his head, was this really going to happen? I don't know if he's in denial, but he's clearly struggling with what revelation they are giving to him. The angels, there's two of them, and there are um, four people, two angels, four hands. Each person, each angel grabs two people, and it's the angels that drag him and his two daughters out of the city. So God has come down there to rescue him and remove him from this place, lest they would be destroyed in the overthrow. But God is not going to destroy them in the overthrow because he says that, um, that he can do nothing. He says, I can do nothing until you leave the city. So we read that um, they drag him out, and he acknowledges that they've found grace in his sight, but ever being the negotiator and, and struggling with this whole issue, then he says, well, I'm afraid to go to the mountains, but let me go to this city, Zoar. Now, it's interesting about the name of the city of Zoar. That was not always the name of the city. It used to have a different name, and the, diff- the name was called Bella, and that means destruction. So the city's name changed from destruction to Zoar, and Zoar simply means little. So God obviously had mercy on every one of those people there for the benefit of Lot. So he's still struggling. He's still having this issue here, and yet the Lord um, has mercy on him, has grace upon him, grants him that one little request to go to that city, and um, there he goes. And so we see that when the sun has risen upon the earth, verse 23, we see that the Lord reigned upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah and those two other cities, fire from the Lord out of heaven. So what I want to appreciate from this, when you consider the walk and the Christian testimony of Lot, I quite frankly find nothing whatsoever meritorious in it. He has a very poor walk. There are people all over this um, planet, which I think would uh, have a better testimony, even if they're non-Christian, than than Lot had. I mean, anybody with any sense would have gotten, would have left those cities uh, if they had been vexed by what's taking place there. I mean, we have a neighbor down the street that moved out of the city of San Francisco because he couldn't abide the things that were happening up there, the lawlessness and the way that people are living. And uh, they are not Christians, but they can see what's going on around them, and it's vexing even, um, even a non-Christian. So off they go, but not so um, with Lot. Um, 
His wife has a heart, a covetous heart for the city, and I suppose you could say that he's honoring his wife by not leaving the city. So, considering Lot's testimony, what works of righteousness could you warrant in his favor? Well, that he offered his daughters instead of the two angels that had come with him, that he allowed himself to be dragged out of the city. Um, Well, we can talk about it during fellowship, but I can't find anything in here about Lot's life that would merit God's mercy and God's salvation other than God will have mercy upon whom he will have mercy and compassion upon whom he will have compassion. When we consider the characteristics of God, he is merciful. He does have compassion. Um, He is slow to anger and slow to wrath. Um, but he is also a righteous and judicial God. And those characteristics are not in um, conflict with one another. He will judge sin everywhere he finds it, including if he finds it in himself. And so when people view the cross, they do see the great mercy of God, that Christ is up there and we are not because our sins were imputed to him. But you should also appreciate that God is judging the sin that he imputed to his son on our behalf. He is judging sin in his son. So if he'll judge sin in himself, what would make people think that he won't judge it in them? He will, of course. He judges sin everywhere he finds it. So Lot, we see, is like a firebrand plucked out of the fire wherein God had his mercy uh, on him. So What's the moral of the story here? That we need to look to Christ for all things. We need to look to him for his grace and for his mercy. And we need to believe in him that he will um, and has indeed taken our sins upon himself, having been imputed to him. That he who knew no sin became sin, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Such is the case certainly for Lot. It's certainly the case for Abraham and that we don't need to make a case for that. The scripture clearly says that, that he was saved um, by are justified by faith. So was Lot, so was every Christian from the beginning of time that they are justified by the grace of God and by the faith of God which is imputed to him. So we'll close with that, with Lot's life set before us here in appreciation that it represents God's grace and his mercy and how God has to come get us and really drag us out of this planet, take us out of our sinful uh, state, impute his righteousness to us, and then he's got to carry us along to get us where we need to go, that we will ultimately be in his presence forever. Amen. Amen.